Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In this week's episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer is in the series, A Life That Pleases God. As we work our way through Hebrews 11, we see examples of those who demonstrated what faith is. Well, what is faith? Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. Did you know that fear can crumble the strongest of the strong? The fear of what others think about us has a greater grip on us than we think. Like a meteorologist, we forecast the negative things that could happen instead of walking by faith. If you're in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we'd love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. Here's Heath with today's message. Faith fears no man. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. We've been there for some time. Hebrews is at the very end of your Bible, at the end of the New Testament, a little bit before the very last book, Revelation, you'll find Hebrews in chapter 11. We've been talking about what faith is. That's what Hebrews 11 is. If you want to know what faith truly is, you can see it defined in verse 1. It's, you know, substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Uh, But then the remainder of the chapter, God gives us pictures. Don't you like picture books? You know, you love an illustration. Uh, Pictures tell a uh, a thousand words. And so what God does is he defines it for us and then makes faith this grand picture book that we get to follow. And he gives us all these photos and these pictures and stories of what faith looks like when it's lived out. Because faith is not simply a curiosity in the divine. Faith isn't just that you're curious about God or that you believe in a spiritual thing. Uh, Faith isn't even just a a choice to go to heaven as opposed to a choice to go to hell. That's survival instinct. Do you want to go to heaven where it's amazing, it's great, and there's there's rainbows and unicorns and birds and everything, and it's just, it's it's wonderful and beautiful, and you can eat all that you want and never get fat. Do you want to go to heaven? Oh, of course. You know, or do you want to go to hell where it's dark and Satan lives there and it's eternal death? And so there's a lot of people who've made a choice for heaven who never made a choice to make Jesus as Lord. When you read the gospel, heaven is never the end result of the gospel. It's always Jesus. Heaven is a byproduct. And so we need to make sure that when we put our faith in Christ, we're putting our faith in him as Lord over our life. We believe the gospel story of the the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, and we say, that's a true story. I'm gonna devote my life and commit myself to him. And then the rest of my life, I'm gonna continue to put my faith in him by living life his way. I'm gonna live obediently to him because there is no other way to truly live. And oh, heaven is in the end where I finally get the summation of all my life's goals and dreams, and that's to be with the Lord that I love. Streets of gold is a byproduct. Well, this morning, we're gonna look at what it looks like to live by faith. And, and what's fun is we're gonna look at a very ordinary couple. In fact, the text is not even gonna give us their name. It's just some guy and some woman. Hebrews 11, verse 23. By faith, Moses. No, this verse is not about Moses. It's about someone else. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. The God, God praises <clears throat> this couple for one thing in particular. It's that they weren't afraid of man. They weren't afraid of people. They were willing to trust God, obey God, and follow God no matter what anybody else in the world thought about them. No matter what they may personally stand to endure as a result of obedience to God, they were willing to do it and they weren't afraid. And God praises them for not being afraid of people. 
We're going to see a few observations here about a life of faith from this ordinary couple, the parents of Moses. First thing we're going to see is that we're all tempted to fear. Hebrews 11.23 begins this way. It just says, by faith, Moses, when he was born. That word when, it's, it's helping us understand. We don't just want you to skip past this. We want you to think about the context, the storyline, the backdrop in which Moses was born. Uh, you can find that if you ever want to read it in the book of Exodus, your very first book of the Bible, Genesis, talking about the creation of the first man and woman, Adam, all the way through the Abraham who was called out and the descendants of Abraham that became a mighty nation called Israel. And at the end of the book, Israel was still living in Egypt. They had gone there because of a great famine. Uh, they grew numerous in that land. Uh, and they're still there at the end of the book of Genesis. And so Exodus picks up, the second book of the Bible, picks up where Genesis 50 left off, that Israel's still in that land, and they have multiplied, uh, just as God said he was going to do for them in Genesis 12 too. He says, I will multiply you, I'll make you view a great nation. The problem for Israel is when did God choose to truly multiply their numbers? It was when they were in the borders of Egypt. Now that's a problem for Egyptians. If the, if these outsiders who moved into your country all of a sudden begin to multiply and expand and, and, and fill your nation, you're going to get a little bit scared. They're going to outnumber us. They're going to maybe overpower us. And so fear drew, drove them uh, to persecute them. It says in Exodus chapter 1, uh, if you want to turn there, you're welcome to join us there as well. Again, it's the second book of your Bible. Exodus 1 verses 8 through 11 says, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. You remember Joseph? He was that, that favored son with a coat of many colors. His brothers got jealous, sold him into slavery, went to Egypt as a slave, rose up the ranks, went to jail falsely, uh, rose the ranks there, was brought out. God helped him interpret dreams. And then God worked through him to save the entire world from a famine by storing up grain. And even Israel itself was forced to move into their borders, this Joseph. And so Joseph was a, a superhero, essentially, in, the, in that culture, in that context. He was a superstar. But there arose a king who didn't know Joseph. I don't know what Joseph has done for us as a nation. I don't care what Joseph has done. I only care that there is potential rivalry to what I want to do within my own borders. And so he says this, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come and let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies and fight against us and escape our land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And, and just like that, the mighty nation of Israel, the people who helped you, the people who, through whom God worked to save the world from a famine, we're going to now enslave them. Can governments ever do that? Forget that the people of God are the reason that they exist and are the cause of all this great goodness within your land, and they become too numerous and then pretty soon they become afraid that the people of God are going to oppose the things that government wants to do. And they think they're being wise. They're going to deal shrewdly with those Christians and begin to persecute them. Can that happen? We're seeing it today in our borders, friends. They have forgotten that this mighty nation was built on Christian principles and godly men and women. And we begin to think that we need to persecute America and deal shrewdly. That's another sermon. We're going to leave that one alone. 
We'll be here all day. Verse 12 uh, says that their motivation for doing this was fear. They were afraid of Israel. It says that the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. And despite the persecution that the Israelites were experiencing in Egypt, they still continued to multiply. The Bible reminds us in Exodus 1 verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more that they spread abroad. Well, what are the Egyptians going to do now? They're going to have to start killing them. We're going to whittle down their numbers. Exodus 1.22 reads, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Why are they letting the daughters live? Because they're not going to fight you. You know, we can enslave them. We can utilize them. It's a natural resource for us, but we got to kill these boys off. And so they did. Uh, now, I want you to remember who this proclamation is coming from. Who ordered that all the boys should be thrown into the Nile? It was Pharaoh. Pharaoh, the mightiest leader of the mightiest nation on earth. And Pharaoh was no ordinary king, was he? Pharaoh was regarded by the Egyptians as a god king. He was literally the manifestation of Horus. If you've ever looked at hieroglyphics and you see like these, this falcon guy, and he's kind of standing there, you know how Egyptian... Hieroglyphics looking. This falcon guy, and he's, this is Horus, their god. And they viewed the Pharaoh as the embodiment of this god Horus on earth, who is the right-hand man of the chief deity in their pantheon called Ra. And so this is not simply an order from a king. This is the order of a god king. Your god has commanded that all these boys should be killed. And so everybody had followed that. And for good reason. They were terrified of the God King. Is it logical and reasonable to be afraid of Pharaoh? I would argue it is. I mean, this man has the power to enslave an entire nation. Is it logical and reasonable uh, to be afraid of this God King who issues an edict to kill all boys? It's logical. Uh, I would even say it's natural to fear those who have power over you and may do you harm. It's, it's natural. It's supernatural to fear God over that kind of a man. Yet yeah, that is exactly what Moses' parents do. They don't care what a God king says. They're going, supernaturally speaking, God transforming their hearts, they're gonna fear God more than the man who can kill their bodies. In fact, when we don't choose to fear God over man, that's when, usually when we lead to sin. Isn't that, I mean, think about Peter. One of Peter's worst hours was when he was denying Jesus, did it three times. Hey, you're that man who follows Jesus. No, I'm not. No, no, you are. You have a Galilean accent. We can hear it. You're from, you're from outside. You're not from around here. No, I'm not. I don't know this man. A little girl comes up and says, no, you're, you're one of those Christ followers. I saw you. And then he began to swear. No, it didn't mean Peter was cussing. It means he was taking a solemn oath. I swear in the highest terms I can. I will deny him in the strongest terms possible by heaven and earth and the gold of the temple and your, your mother. Uh, I don't know this man. Why did Peter do that? It was the fear of man, what man could do to him. We have examples all over the Bible like this. Abraham lies about his wife to Abimelech, says, she's actually my sister. Now, why would any man tell somebody that this is my sister? Somebody may have actually, you know, fornicated with his wife. Why was he willing to risk that? Fear of man. He's, he's afraid of what people might do. Uh, Israel, they refused to enter the promised land. Why? Because they're afraid of people. They scouted the land and saw giants there. And so they're afraid of people. Even though God had supernaturally delivered them from the mightiest nation on earth, they're going to remain afraid because there's some big people. There's a basketball team there. And we're scared of them. And so they wouldn't enter the land. Aaron makes a golden calf and says, this is the God that led you out of Egypt. Why would Aaron do that? Aaron knows better. 
He's afraid of the people. He's afraid of what people might do to him. Pontius Pilate, governor, he crucified Jesus. Why? Because he thought Jesus was guilty? No, he tried on multiple occasions to get Jesus released, but ultimately had Jesus crucified. Why? Because the people were saying, you're no friend of Caesar, which was a title that he wanted to protect. And so being afraid of the people, being afraid of what he might lose, he crucified the king of glory. You see, when we're afraid of people, we're at our worst. When we're afraid and we make decisions based upon what might happen, the what ifs of life, we're afraid of what people might think of us, what they might say about us, what they might do to us, what they might take from us. It's at that point that we are on the very precipice of rebelling against God himself. It's not fear, it's not faith, it's fear. We've all been there. You know, you felt peer pressure before, the fear of man. It starts at an early age, doesn't it? This desire to conform so that I don't get picked on. I remember when I was a little kid, my mom took me to a playground. Uh, she said I was like five years old or something. I don't remember how old I was, but I met a little friend named Mitch Zerbel, okay? And uh, Mitch knew some words that I didn't get taught at my little Clear Lake Baptist Church. Uh, they were special words, and he seemed to use them with great force and great joy. And so I decided to try these words out uh, on my sister because, you know, Heath wants to be cool. Uh, you know, I was this bastion of faith and strength, and so I decided, and my mom, and I quote, says, you cussed your sister up a blue streak. Now, I don't know what that means, but it wasn't good. Now, I did that out of fear. I didn't want Mitch to reject me. This is one of my early entrances into child, you know, social life. Fast forward a few years later, I didn't learn from my mistakes. I have a few of my friends in, the, in this old long barn, this old acreage we used to live on. There was this big long barn. There's probably 20 cars or better in there. And I was showing them off all these old cars that my dad had and collected and things. And one of those cars was just some old, plain, nondescript white station wagon. And one of my friends says, this one doesn't look so special. And here's a can of red spray paint. Again, being man of great virtue and character, I said, okay. And so I was shaking up this can and I sprayed just this big, long red stripe down this white station wagon. I don't know, why'd I do it? I didn't have any, I've been in that barn several times. I've never spray painted any cars. Why'd I do it? The fear of man. Fast forward a few years later, we can all tell stories <clears throat> of high school or college, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> and things that we did, things that we said, ways that we treated people, and we did it simply because we wanted to fit in, we wanted to conform, we didn't want to stick out, we, didn't, we were afraid of people. We were afraid of what people might say about us or do to us if we don't conform. Now, is the fear of man itself a sin? It is. You want to know why? It's because Jesus commanded us not to fear man. We read this morning right here in worship, Matthew 10, 28, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What Jesus is saying is, we are all making a choice every day with the decisions that we make. We're either choosing to fear God or fear man, but you can't do both. You can't fear God and fear man. You're gonna fear man and you're gonna forget God. And that's, that's the most tempting thing to do because man's retribution is immediate. And so a lot of times we'll avoid immediate retribution, we'll disobey God, we will dishonor God so that we can avoid immediate consequences. In Isaiah 51, verse 12 and 13, God rebuked Israel for doing the same kind of thing. He says, God says, I am he who comforts you. I'm the one who protects you. I'm the one you should go to. I'm the one that looks out for you, don't worry. I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? 
Think about it. All these people that we're afraid of. You ever go through Facebook and you look back at high school bullies and you see what they grew up to be? <laughs> you know, and they're like, they're like uh, out of shape, bald, and like working at a gas station or something, you know, when they're 55. And that, they, they just never really kind of really got their life and traction. You're thinking, why was I afraid of that guy? Why was I afraid of this person? And God is saying the same thing. I'm the one that comforts you. Who are you that you're afraid of man who dies? He said, uh, or the son of man who is made like grass. People are like grass, the Bible says. We grow up for a time, we're cut down. It's, it's that simple. We're weak people. Why are you afraid of weak people? Isaiah 2.22, he says, stop regarding man, being worried about what man thinks of you. That's what it means to regard them. You're constantly contemplating man. What does man think of me? What does man say about me? What is man's opinion of me? He says, stop regarding man. And the reason he said that, I think it's kind of funny. He says, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is his breath. This is a weak person. You're afraid of him? You're afraid of this guy? You plug his nose, he's dead. Why are you afraid of this guy? You know, I want to say the same thing to my wife, though. We were just out last night to Slim Chickens. We're sitting there. I had my arm around her. All of a sudden, I felt a little cricket crawling in my hand. If you don't know my wife... Uh, so I just kind of tried to casually flick it off my hand, and as, that's all I had to do. And all of a sudden, Amber, who was exhausted from a day of impact, all of a sudden had the strength of like a, a battalion of soldiers. And she just, I know what that is. And she just, she is pushing me out of the, of the bench to get out of here. And I want to look at her and say, why are you afraid of this guy? You could step on him. He's not going anywhere. He's not eating you. And she's afraid of this little guy and she's pushing her husband out and she doesn't even care what anybody in the, the restaurant thinks of her as she shamelessly is you know, pushing me to get out of the bench. And I just thought that was so funny. I was like, you're going in the sermon tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how, that's how God feels about us. The way a husband looks at his wife for, are we okay, babe? Okay. <laughs> it's the way a husband looks at his wife about a cricket. Why are you afraid of this little guy? He's nothing he can truly do and any lasting harm or impact, but we react in just this great sense of fear and trepidation. God says, why are you afraid of people in whose nostrils is his breath? Plug his nose and the guy's dead. Why do you care what he thinks of you? Why do you let people define who you are? And yet, don't we do that all the time? Those, you know, when we're going to school and we're in those formative years and we're concerned about what other people think of us, they may not like me. I may not fit in. They made fun of my clothes. They made fun of how I dress. They made fun of, uh, kids make fun of everything. Or worse yet, we can carry that into adulthood, can't we? And you're still living today out of a fear of what happened to you when you were in high school or junior high. Or, or you're still living in this prison of fear because of how maybe your mommy or daddy treated you when they were 25 or 30 and you're 65 years old and you're still living in this prison of fear and sadness and anxiety and you lack self-worth because you're remembering what some 25-year-old did when they were struggling through life and said about you carelessly. Don't let man in his breath is his nostrils tell you who you are. God says you're valuable. God says you're competent. God says he has a plan and a future for you and we have to remember that the only person who gets to define who we are is God. Quit fearing people. The man's opinion of you and what people think of you is of very little value. But what God thinks of you in eternity, that's one day, that's all that's gonna matter to you. Well, is it a sin for someone to back down from speaking the truth because you fear man's reprisal? Is it wrong for a pastor to only preach segments of scripture because he knows it'll make him happy? 
Friends, if I stand up here and I only preach you the things that you want to hear or that make me feel good, I'm a hireling. I'm just here for the job. I don't care about you. If you have a man who fears God and cares about his people, you're going to preach the entirety of the Bible just like Paul did. Paul said in Acts 20, 26 to 27, mind you, the context of that is Paul's in the midst of Ephesus, the most idolatrous city on earth, and the entire city gathered together shouting, great is Diana, the goddess of the Ephesians. And in the context of this, Paul preaches, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. It's in the Bible. There's going to be things in the Bible that bother man. It's going to upset you that some of the things we do, God's going to call sin. It's going to make people mad. And some preachers, teachers, pastors, Sunday school teachers, we're going to avoid those topics. Well, I don't want to go down that road. Because we're afraid of what people are going to think. We're afraid of what they'll say. Or we're afraid that they may leave my church if they don't like what I preach. If you're living there, friends, you're no longer fearing God but man. You're just afraid of what people are going to say about you. Paul says, I am innocent of the blood of all. I.e., if I only preach the parts of the Bible you want to hear, I am guilty of their blood. I am guilty of not sharing the word of God and the life-giving truth that Jesus saves, and we can't save ourselves. We're not good enough. If we can't share that gospel message, it's because we're afraid of man, what he'll do to us. And when we're afraid of man, we're not fearing God. In fact, Paul says he didn't shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. We've looked at that word before, haven't we? Shrink back, to pull back in. Um, it's, that word, it's that Greek word, hupostello, which doesn't mean much to you. I just want you to see how close it is to a different word, apostello. An apostello is an apostle. It's somebody who is sent out by Jesus by faith into a world that hates you and hates your message, but you're going to leave the comfort and the safety of Jesus' side, and you're going to go out into the world, and you're going to share the, and teach the whole counsel of God. That's an apostello. They go out from. A hupostello does the opposite. They pull back in. They pull back in and under, like a turtle does in his shell. Why does a turtle pull into his shell? It's because you're out there, okay? He's scared of you. He pulls back in because he's trying to protect himself. And when a turtle is in his shell, he's not doing what he is called by God to do, to go out into the world, to find food and to find a mate, to be fruitful and multiply. He's pulling back into his shell. He's not doing what God called him to do because he's afraid. He's protecting himself. And Paul says, I didn't do that. I, I didn't shrink back into my shell because I'm afraid of what people might say about me because of my message, because I preached something they didn't like. I didn't make decisions on what to preach based upon a desired outcome. I want lots and lots of people to like me. I want lots and lots of people to come to my church. So I'm going to, I'm going to craft a message that's going to appeal to the masses. Paul says, you are guilty of the blood of others. He says, I'm innocent of your blood because I won't do that. I'm going to preach the entirety of what God's word says, and I'm going to do it because I care about you and I fear God. And so I'm not going to be hupostello. I'm not going to shrink back out of fear. By the way, when, uh, the fear of man is this. It's when we pull into our shell to protect ourselves rather than to move forward by faith to obey God and leave the outcome to him. God, I'm not going to do it, make decisions in life based upon things that I think I can control. I'm simply going to obey your word <clears throat> and I'm going to trust you with the outcome. I don't make decisions based upon what I think I can control. I'm going, to, I'm going to obey you, and I'm going to trust you with the outcome. People may hate me. People may not like me. People may threaten my life. But God, I'm going to follow your word. In fact, if we aren't willing to do that, if we're not willing to live by faith and we shrink back, what, how does God feel about us? How does God feel about the cowardly Christian? Hebrews 10.38, you can back up just a few verses, and you can look for yourself. 
He says, my righteous one, that's somebody who has been declared righteous by God. That's just another word for a born-again believer, the great judge of the universe, has already declared you righteous. My righteous one shall live by faith. He's trusting God for the outcome. And if he shrinks back, there's that word again, to hupostello, to back in, to pull into your shell, to protect yourself, rather than to trust God with your future. If he shrinks back, my soul, what? has no pleasure in him. It's the opposite of what we as believers want for our life. This whole sermon series, remember, is a life that pleases God. A true believer wants one thing to hear at the end of his life, well done, good and faithful servant. We all want that, and we live for that. We make decisions based upon that desired outcome in life. I just want to hear God say, well done. Man may not agree with me. Man may say you didn't do well. But as long as God says, well done, good and faithful servant, I'm a happy man. That's living by faith. It's living for the pleasure of God. God says he has no pleasure in the Christian who refuses to obey his word and move forward in obedience to his mission because we're scared, because we're afraid of what people might do to us. People might talk about me. People might gossip about me. People might lie about me. Or as a pastor, your your great pressure, people might leave the church. Do people leave churches sometimes? Always for good reasons? People are always coming in and out of churches. If you preach simply to try to contain a group of people in here, you're living in fear. You're living in fear. God, there's always gonna be people coming and going. Remember Jesus in John 6, he's feeding the 5,000. He gets done with his sermon. How many are still left with him? The twelve. Was Jesus afraid of losing people? He wasn't. He was concerned about accomplishing the mission of God. And it's not that we aren't concerned that people come or go. It's that we're more concerned about pleasing God than man. And some men aren't quite as concerned about pleasing God. They don't want to do his mission. And so they're going to find a church that will accomplish their mission. And so we don't worry about those things. We love people. We want all people to come. We want all people to love God, to know his word, to be engaged in his mission. But if they won't, we wish them well. But here at this church, we're going to teach the whole counsel of God, and we're going to engage ourselves principally with accomplishing the mission of God, and that's to share that love of Christ with everybody outside these walls. And we've got to do that if we're concerned about pleasing God and not man. In fact, God will go one step further. He's going to call Christian cowardice unbelief. I mean, look in Revelation 21.8. Revelation 21, the the very end of the book that's at the very end of the Bible, When God is casting men into hell, I want you to look at the very first person that he, uh, the very first sin that he describes of the people that go there. He says, but as for the cowardly, and then he mentions all the other ones we expect, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers. We all agree that sorcerers are going to hell. We all agree murderers are going to hell. Hitler is there somehow already. But we all agree that these bad guys are going to hell. He says, and they're liars. He says, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, and that is the second death. What concerns us is that amongst the sorcerers and the liars and Hitler, um, he's got a group of people here called the cowardly. Now, that's not talking about people who are a little bit afraid of things. I'm a little bit nervous to... I don't know, you're going to have a surgery and you get a little scared. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about people who fear God over man, who are too afraid to obey God. They're too afraid to follow God. They're too afraid to put their faith in God because of what people might say. They're too afraid to obey God and follow his word because, of again, of what people might say. And so they are cowardly. They make a conscious choice. I'm going to do what benefits me right now 
to protect myself rather than to stick my neck out to apostello, to go out from Jesus, to obey him and just leave the outcome to God and trust him. God describes that as the cowardly. It's a symptom of unbelief. I'm choosing not to trust God. I'll tell you, uh, it's, it's very inspiring because we all struggle with, with a little bit of cowardice. It, it's common to us, right? It's something we all have to struggle against to say, you know, I'm inwardly, I'm afraid of what man will do to me, but I am going to choose to obey God no matter the consequence. I saw some people do that in my lifetime. Uh, I've had people in America. I've seen people do it in India. I've seen people do it in China of these believers who just are not, they're not afraid of what man will do to them. And they inspire us. I've seen people in China uh, who we've been teaching them and we're following them in their ministry. We're encouraging them. And I've seen Christians where, uh, you know, they had the one-child policy once upon a time. And we've seen Christians where the government threatens to take their baby, to forcibly take that woman to an abortion clinic and make her have an abortion. And that knowing that's going to take place for their second child, we've known of friends who will defy the Chinese government, one of the strongest governments in the world, to defy the Chinese government, and they go into hiding for nine months to protect their child. I've seen Chinese Christians who uh, the government is opposing their church. You can't have a church unless the government has its stamp and seal of approval on it, which means basically you're not teaching the Bible anymore. Um, and they will, they will defy one of the mightiest governments on earth. And they will have an underground church, and sometimes they get found out. And some of our friends have uh, been found by the police. They've been put in prison. They've been chained up. They've been water tortured. These are some of our personal friends. This isn't hypothetical. This isn't something you read in a book. They're people that I can give you their names. And yet they still follow God because they're not afraid of what people can do to them. One of our close, one of our close friends over there, uh, he had a, a desire to get the gospel out into all the minorities. Government brought him into a hotel one day, forcibly. He, his wife and kids, separated him from his wife and kids, threatened to deport the wife and kids, threatened to make the man disappear. Often in China, when China makes a man disappear, they can do it pretty easily. I don't know if you know this or not. In China, they have mobile execution vans. Our vans in America deliver pizza, okay? In China, they deliver death, and they will get in there, they will give you a shot, you will, you will fall into a deep sleep and die, they will zip up the bag, and they'll drive to the next house. Where are we off to next, Jimmy? We're going to this house. And, that's, and yet, knowing all the while that these things can take place, these people still have the bravery, the faith in God enough that God commands me to do this, I'm gonna follow him, whatever the outcome may be, it's not my job to determine how my life ends. It's not my job to protect myself. Remember, God says that I'm the one who comforts you. I'm the strong one with you. It's not my job to protect me, to pull into my shell. It's my job to move forward, apostello, to move forward in trust and faith that God will take care of me. And even if he allows me to go into a period of suffering at times for doing so, it's worth it because I gain the approval of God. I want to live for that. In fact, for this such a person who's willing to do that, Jesus says in Matthew 5, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These are the kind of people that are born again. This is an evidence of conversion. He says, blessed are you when others revile you and they persecute you and utter all kinds of evil things against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Why? because your reward is great in heaven, and for so they persecuted the prophets who came before you. Rejoice. 
your following of Jesus in faith isn't going to result in an easy, smooth, comfortable life, but it will be a fulfilling life. It will be a joy-filled life. And you know that in the end, the, uh, the, the commendation of God awaits you. Well done. That's all I care about. I hope that's all you care about. Number two here, through faith, even ordinary people can be bold. When we start talking about the boldness like this, we're talk, a lot of times we think of these great missionaries and pastors and martyrs of history, and we're like, praise God for those bold people. Don't expect me to do that. Can ordinary people be bold? Hebrews eleven twenty three. it's right there. These are, not, these are not great men and women of the faith that we think of typically, but God does. Hebrews 11.23, remember, uh, it talked about, by faith, Moses, when he was born, for hidden for three months by his parents. That's what we get about them. It's, it's just their parents. You don't even know their names. Gun to your head, how many of y'all could actually tell me the names of Moses' parents? Couple of you, maybe, because you watched the Prince of Egypt cartoon. You could tell me. Amram and Yahabed. Oh, that was at the tip of your tongue, wasn't it? Or maybe in America, you know, we call them Amram and Jochebed. Okay, ring a bell now? Okay, that's Moses' parents. We don't even know their name most of the time, and yet God, when God wants to line up examples in Hebrews 11 of the great men and women of history who trusted God, who didn't fear man, this unnamed couple ends up in the Bible. I just think that's incredible that God uses these ordinary people. By faith, his parents. Ordinary man, ordinary woman, some slave kid. This unknown couple defied the orders of a God king. And you can find that in Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. If you want to flip back there, you can, or just look at it on the screen. It says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. And the woman bore, er, conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months." Even in Exodus, when the Bible introduces Moses' parents, still didn't tell you who they are because that's not essential to you understanding and applying that story. What you need to see is these are ordinary, average, everyday folks, guys who, uh, you know, change your oil, people who work at Walmart, people who are school teachers and accountants, and average, ordinary people, important to God, but... These are not people who are like seminary trained or, or people who are great and mighty warriors and great and mighty soldiers, uh, great scholars with PhDs. This average ordinary people of which God made most of us. We're just average and ordinary. And yet they, in, they exhibited great boldness. And they did that to save some Hebrew kid. And the reason I say it that way is don't get the impression that when we, they did this great act of faith that they knew full well that they were made a conscious choice. Well, we have this whole Moses guy coming up, that's this kid, and our entire future is hinged upon it, so it's worth the sacrifice. They didn't do it for that reason. They didn't even, when they had him, his name wasn't even Moses. You know that, right? They didn't name their own kid. You want to see who named their kid, uh, you'd have to go a little bit further into the scriptures. Exodus chapter 2 and verse 10, it says, when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, Pharaoh's daughter. And she, Pharaoh's daughter, named him Moses, which means uh, one who is drawn out. And she says, I named him this because I drew him out of the water. You remember that? The parents, by faith, hid him. Uh, eventually, they were led to put him in this ark of bulrushes, this little uh, reeds and pitch, and they sent him down the river, and God led him to Pharaoh's daughter who pulled him up out of the river and raised Moses in her palace as her own child. God rewards those who live by faith. 
The very thing that you hope to do and protect, you know, in, in obeying the Pharaoh would cause the death of your child. Following God actually led to life in the end. But that's all this is. She didn't even name her own kid. This is just some random couple with some Hebrew kid, and God used this mightily. I want you to consider that God loves to use ordinary people to possess great faith and to exercise great boldness. God loves doing that because when, when God does uses ordinary people to do great acts of faith, God gets the glory and not man. He loves using us ordinary type people. 1 Corinthians 1, 26, 27 says, For consider your calling, brothers, that not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many of you were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Is it important that just ordinary, everyday people exercise faith? It's absolutely. It's essential that you and I, ordinary people, that we exercise faith. In this particular case, what would have happened if they had not exercised faith? What if uh, Yahabed is saying to her husband, hey, we got to give this kid up. After all, we don't want to die. This is a God king. We can't defy him. Humanly speaking, we can look back. Moses dies. He doesn't deliver the nation. Israel stays in that land. Most of their kids are killed, the boys, mind you, of which is the line of Christ is going to arise out of said boys. It affects the lineage that leads to Christ. Hypothetically speaking, if they did not exercise faith, there would be a, a series of events that would be destructive to them as a nation. It's important that ordinary people, God loves to use ordinary people to exercise extraordinary faith. God loves to just do great works through, through average people. Who were most of the disciples of Jesus? Fishermen. Stinky old Sorry, Kevin. Uh, stinky old fishermen. Just average guys slaving out there in the middle of the water in the boat, bringing in, you ever smell dead fish? Uh, it's not a cologne. And so you don't want to be just an average ordinary fisherman, but yet Jesus says these are the men who are in Acts 17 going to turn the world upside down. God turns the world upside down using ordinary people like us. A kid, a poor kid who grew up on a farm with nine other kids without food in the middle of an acreage who rode hogs for fun. I mean, just some average nobody kid living outside of the, a town with 600 people. God can use each one of us, and he loves to do so. And if we don't exercise faith as an ordinary person, we're, we're limiting what God can and will do in our life. We're not there yet, but Christmas time, we're going we're gonna to start watching It's a Wonderful Life again, unless you're tired of that. Uh, and in that movie, we see an ordinary man exercising great faith in not fearing another man. George Bailey, oh, he had these great, you know, uh, aspirations of, of grandeur and traveling the world. And he gave it up to take care of his dad's penny-ante building and loan. And uh, he's opposing a man, the most mighty man in, the, in Bedford Falls, who was Mr. Potter, the man that we never got to see thrown out of a second-story window, but everybody wanted it. He was an evil man, and everybody was afraid of Potter. You remember? Everybody in that boardroom wanted to side with Potter because they're scared of him. And George Bailey opposes this man. He turns down a job for $20,000 a year with this man, which adjusted for inflation was turning down a $340,000 a year job. 
He turns down this, this lucrative, wealthy life to, follow, to, to reject Potter, to, to live against him, to oppose him. And because of that, you've got all these beautiful neighborhoods and, and the whole town is cheering and he finds Zuzu's petals and Clarence gets his wings and all these great things happen. But before that, Clarence shows him, what if this one ordinary man chose to, like everybody else, live in fear of man? Bedford Falls becomes Pottersville. Bedford Falls becomes this... this just this hive of sin and decadence and gambling and dance halls and drinking and just all kinds of just, just it just becomes this, this awful little place you don't want to live. You don't want to live in Potterville. But because he wouldn't stand up to him, the entire town just gave in to Potter. But this one man stood up against him. And so Clarence is showing him uh, in his life, what would life be like without you? It becomes Potterville. Your brother Harry dies. All the men in that landing craft died because Harry wasn't there to save them. The life of a single individual choosing not to fear man, choosing to live by moral principles makes a difference. Well, how do ordinary people get there? The same way George Bailey did. We have to believe in a moral principle. We have to trust God with the outcome of that moral principle. Number three, fear of man is lost as we fear God. Back to Hebrews eleven twenty three, 23, it says, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and because they were not afraid of the king's edict. And so the focus of this couple is that they didn't contemplate their outcome. They weren't worried about the king and what he might do. They were concerned about one thing chiefly. It was a moral principle that caused them to not be afraid of man. And this moral principle in this particular one uh, simply says, because they saw that the child was beautiful. Now, we need to understand what that means. At first glance and reading of Hebrews 11, 23, we get the impression that they just saw this beautiful little pudgy kid that was born to them, just so gorgeous, uh, that this kid is too cute to throw in the Nile River. But that's not at all actually what it's saying. If you want further clarification on this verse, this verse almost repeats itself verbatim in Acts chapter 7, verses 20 and 21. Stephen, the church's first martyr, he's going to get killed for this sermon. Um, he preaches this message about Israel's history and things trying to reveal to them that Jesus is simply a fulfillment of the Old Testament. And he comes to Moses and he says, at the time Moses was born and he was, you see Hebrews eleven twenty three 23 here? And he was beautiful in God's sight and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And so this reveals a little bit more about what the motivations were. It's not just that they were so in love with their child, it's that they realized a moral principle. This child is beautiful in God's sight. This child has inherent value. And because God says this child should not be killed, I'm going to defy the orders of a king. That takes faith. And that's why they find themselves in Hebrews chapter 11. The only way we're ever gonna become bold believers for Christ is first of all, you have to know who God is and trust him fully. And then you have to know what his word says. If you don't trust God, you're never gonna live boldly. You're going to live the life of a turtle in a shell. And if you don't know what the word of God says, you can't stand boldly for what is true. So you have to trust God implicitly and you have to know his word deeply. When those two things are present in a believer's life, that you know the word of God and you trust that it is the word of God, there is no man who's gonna prevent you from following your obedience to God and hearing the words well done. That's where boldness comes from. It's why the, that Moses' parents were so bold here. They, they knew who God was, they followed implicitly, and they knew, that, they knew the values of God. They have a moral principle that this child is beautiful in God's sight. 
You think, well, I don't know if that's me or not. You see, boldness, I'm an introvert. I'm not an extrovert. But understand again, those are just psychological terms. They're describing what they're observing here. Uh, I'm not real excited about those terms and letting those terms define us. Can God use quiet people? He absolutely does. Most of the bold people I know are these people who work in the backgrounds, who work quietly, who follow God, have a deep, deep-seated love for him, who spend time in his word, and they just don't move. They just don't budge from God's word. I will not be moved away from faith in God. And so boldness is not a personality trait. They're bold because they have a deep-seated trust in God and who he is and that his way is right, and they know what the word of God says. Armed with that, there is nobody they fear. They fear God alone. I want you to understand how much freedom that is to only fear God. You know, even in nature, you look out there and you'll see some of these little timid creatures. You ever look out your window and you just see these little sparrows, these little brown birds, these little nondescript birds. Anybody have a pet sparrow? They're not beautiful. Uh, you don't probably, you're probably not going home to eat roast sparrow, most of you. Uh, they're not valuable birds in, in human thought and evaluation. Uh, just this little brown bird, and they're scared of everything because everything eats them. And so, I mean, a leaf falls to the ground. That little sparrow, he's taken off. But have you ever observed a little sparrow chasing like a big old crow? <laughs> because he got a little too close to this. All of a sudden, this little sparrow that flies off at the drop of a leaf, you'll see him exercising tremendous faith uh, and confidence and boldness because there's a, there's a moral principle that he's aware of. Number one, that I have children that I dearly love. And number two, there's a crow here that wants to eat them. When we, when we have a deep love and we have a, a, a moral principle that we firmly believe in, you can find boldness. The boldness that causes a little sparrow to chase off a giant bird just proves you don't have to be big to be bold. You don't have to be, have a title to be bold. You don't have to have a degree to be bold. You don't have to have a lot of money to be bold. You just have to trust God and know what his word says. And can, God can give you the boldness of that little sparrow who somehow ducked into a phone booth and became super bird and, you know, is fighting crime. God can do that with us. You don't have to be big to be bold. We just have to have a boldness to act on what God's word says. The alternative is to live a life of fear and to pull within and to hoopostello and to back under and to hide and to try to protect what little life we have. But can I tell you, that's a miserable life to lead. Proverbs 29, 25 says this. The fear of man does what to you? It lays a snare. When you're afraid of people and you make decisions always based upon the what ifs of life, what if they won't like me? What if they won't accept me? What if they say bad things about me? What if they lie about me? What if they leave the church? What if they get angry? What if they give me an angry email? What if this person won't be my friend? What if this person I share the gospel with at work? What if they think I'm silly and stupid for doing so? What if? If you're living your life based upon what ifs and you're making all of your decisions in lives trying to avoid all of those what ifs, can I tell you, friends, you're living in fear of man. You cannot live life trying to judge the outcome of something and then backpedaling and seeing what safe little decision can I make in my life that will avoid the possibility of the what ifs, of somebody getting upset. And we're gonna live in fear of other people. We're, we're afraid as a church to reach out to our, our neighbors because some people may not like that. We have to ask ourselves a different question. Is God like it? Does God like it when we show love to all of our friends in the neighborhood and not just a, a few? 
We're afraid of the what ifs, aren't we? We're afraid we go to, you know, you go to school, you're afraid, what if people won't accept me? So I'm going to talk like them, I'm going to act like them, I'm going to watch their filthy movies, I'm going to drink what they drink and smoke what they smoke, whatever people are smoking today. You guys are smoking with electronics these days now. You know, we're just, I just want to fit in. You're living in a prison of fear. Or we go home and we're afraid. I don't want to instill rules or discipline in my home with my children because they might rebel. That's the fear of man. Or husbands, I'm afraid to lead my home to follow God and to honor God's principles because I'm afraid of what my wife might say to me. You're living in the fear of man. Well, in this case, a woman. But, you know, logical, rational, reasonable, but God wants us to be supernatural. And he wants us to live in the fear of God and do what's right. And so the Bible says, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. When you trust in the Lord, it means you have confidence in who he is, and therefore you have confidence in his word. When you follow God, you follow his word, in the ultimate assessment of all things, you are a safe person. God himself is protecting you, and the end of all things is the kingdom of heaven. But there's still gonna be people who want to live in the fear of man. The Bible says, if you do that, you lay a snare. Now, most of us, we don't deal in snares, unless you're a trapper. Eli probably knows and probably has snares in his backyard. That brother's ready for the apocalypse. Something goes down, I'm going to his house. Uh, snares, most of us, we don't use them, but my wife and I, we had our in-laws in. We were watching a show called Alone. Anybody seen that? And it, you really are alone. They take somebody that they obviously don't like, and they take them into like the backwoods of Canada and just in the Arctic Circle, and they're like, here, here's a pocket knife and a string. Survive for the next you know, year. And they go out there, and they're taking this stuff, and if you've watched that show, you've seen a snare. And they'll take this thing, and they'll, they'll, they'll get the string or the rope or whatever, and they'll tie it to branches or whatever, some kind of device and, uh, that will trap this animal, and they'll put some bait out there, and this little unsuspecting bunny rabbit, you know, will come in, he'll start eating us, and somehow he'll get caught in the snare, and this little noose thing will grab him by the ankle and kind of string him up. It'll, it'll help, it, he won't be able to get away. The Bible says when we fear man, we are caught in that same kind of snare. We are tempted to think that if I go toward this and I follow them and I please people and I make everybody happy in my life, that I'm going to, that my life's going to have its best possible outcome. What the Bible says is you're actually in a snare. You're constantly worried about what people think of you. And the Bible says you're like that little bunny with a noose around its foot and he's suspended in midair. You can't go anywhere. It prevents you from moving forward. You you hoopostella, you pull back. You can't live your life. You can't go forward in faith by God. You can't lead your family. You can't lead your home. You can't lead the church. You're just stuck in this trap, and that's what it is, this trap of pleasing people, making sure, are you happy? 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 And you know what? You're still gonna find out people are not happy with you. What a trap. What a burden. What a prison. That is, but the beautiful thing is for God's people, do you know it only takes uh, one step of faith to get, rid of, to get out of that snare? Do you know what it is? John 8, 32, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. When you start becoming concerned with what pleases God, and, and you're living by the truth, and you're not caring about what man thinks of you as you follow God, the Bible says that's the freest an individual can be. You're free of human expectation. You're free of human applause. You're, you're, you're free of trying to live up to the expectations and live a very safe, controlled life where, I, where nobody's mad at me, nobody's ever angry with me, nobody ever disagrees with me, nobody's coming after me, nobody's lying about me. And the Bible says all the while you're in this safe little snare. But you can be free. The Bible says you just have to be afraid of God more than man. You have to know what his word says and you've got to be willing to stand on it. 
I'll give you this one last verse and we're gone. Psalm 118 verse six says, the Lord is on my side. You know what it means to have somebody on your side if you played uh, tackle football as a little kid on the playground. You choose sides and somebody picks, there's like always one kid that like outgrew all the rest of the kids. And if you're first, you're picking that kid every time. You got the big guy on your side and you're like, game over. Uh, I got the big guy on my side. The Bible says you have the biggest being in the universe on your side. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what man can do to me. When we know that the biggest, greatest, strongest, most infinitely powerful, infinitely wise being in the universe is on our side, it's then that you can live outside of the snare of the fear of man and you can move forward and follow in obedience to God. I want you to see here what he says, I will not fear. It shows us that fear is a choice, but so is faith. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you today as we study your word that we can live as free people, that God, we don't have to live with this grand burden of making just the loudest voices in our life happy, just trying to go around and to please the angriest voices in our life, but that if we fear you alone, that we realize that the Lord is on my side, I know what his word says, I can say confidently that we are walking obediently to you as we move forward, we need fear no one. And we, like this little couple, this little unnamed couple in Exodus, we can be like them and we can defy the orders of a God king. All because we have a fear of you. Lord, I pray for each person here that we would have boldness, the right kind of boldness, not a cockiness, not an arrogance, not just pushing to get our way, but that we would have a boldness to stand on your word, to move forward in life obediently, and just live in the freedom of not being afraid of what people will say in the freedom of not worrying about what people think of us, just knowing that there is a God on the other side of this life, on the other side of this veil of tears, this valley of the shadow of death, on the other side, there is a mighty and powerful God who's looking out for me, and he's gonna say well done to me one day. God, we live for that day, and we live only for your applause. Give us the boldness to leave this place, God, and to live in obedience to the word, and to go and do the things that, you know, that we know deep down we should have always done and just trust you with whatever outcome that brings. We ask this in Christ's name. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, may we do as Psalm 119.10 says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments.